Hey, Jay. What's worrying you, Miles? The blood of apocalypse. Have you tried cold water? Cold water? Well, unless it's dried, and then you're probably going to want to go straight to bleach. What? No, no, no. I mean, the whole Dracula thing, where Apocalypse's blood is canonically extra tasty. You know, I think it's less a matter of tasty than almost as versatilely superpowered as Apocalypse himself. How so? Well, according to Cable and Deadpool, Apocalypse can regenerate from a single cell of blood, for starts, Wolverine style. Is that part of his mutation? Well, it's a mix of that, techno-organic upgrades, celestial tech, and good old narrative sleight of hand. What else? Well, he's got healing powers, or at least for mutants. Wait, I think I remember that. That's how Chamber got fixed up, right? Which time? It's happened more than once. Oh, yeah. The first time was Weapon X, but then that got screwed up by decimation, and Chamber was basically stuck on life support with no internal organs to speak of. Ouch. Right? Fortunately for Chamber, it turned out his family was actually Clan Akaba going way back, so they grabbed him and fixed him up again. To make him into a horseman? Nah, basically just for the hell of it. That has to have some side effects. He turned gray for a while and kind of got the fish lips thing, but it faded. So he's got his torso back now. What? No. What happened? Well, one of Legion's personalities briefly rewrote reality into a dystopian hellscape to let Legion have one go as a big damn hero. And while most of the universe reverted to its pre-Age of X state afterwards, Chamber came back with both his powers and the gaping hole in his chest restored to their status quo. What?! J. Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 110 of J. and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And in this case, of movies, perhaps not greatest, but still very present, superhero soap opera. Right. We are taking a break from our ongoing coverage of the possibly endless Inferno event and crossover to give you a quick crash course to prepare you for the upcoming release of X-Men Apocalypse, technically either the sixth, eighth, or ninth movie in Fox's X-Men cinematic franchise. Oh man, that's quite a few. Yeah, it kind of depends on how you're counting. So if you're just looking at the X-Men movies that have like X-Men in the title, it's the sixth. If you're also including the Wolverine movies, which are technically part of the same timeline... And one of which also has X-Men in its title. That's true. It is the eighth. And if you're including Deadpool, which is part of the Fox Cinematic Universe, but may or may not take place in the same timeline as the X-Men movie, since it has a version of the X-Men that doesn't quite actually line up with the previous cinematic ones, it's nine. Okay, so the movies have successfully captured some of the ambiguity and confusion of the comics, for which I applaud them. I mean, in a lot of ways, they are a time-travel-heavy, retcon-filled, deeply confusing, continuity-scrambled, artificially Wolverine-centric sprawling clusterfuck. If that's not true to the spirit of the X-Men, I don't know what is. Well said. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how this episode's going to work. So, Jay, like you were saying, this episode is basically designed to get people ready to dive into seeing X-Men Apocalypse, both in terms of the movie background and the comic background. Right. Now, if you were here two years ago, you might remember a similar episode where we did something like this for Days of Future Past. This one's going to be a lot like that. We're going to talk about the preceding movies, a little bit about the cinematic status quo leading up to Apocalypse. I should note here, by the way, that this is going to include some pretty in-depth discussion of all of the previous movies through Days of Future Past. If you haven't seen those yet and you're concerned about avoiding spoilers, you might want to wait. Now, as far as our discussion of X-Men Apocalypse, which we have seen, we saw a press screening of it, we're going to do our best to keep this completely spoiler-free. But of course, if you want to know absolutely nothing about it, this may not be the episode for you yet. Yeah, I mean, what we discussed and what we're going to try to do is basically not bring in details of the movie that haven't been featured prominently in promotions over the last year. So basically, if you've got the frame of reference of someone with access to the internet or, you know, general access to pop culture, and you've seen, like, say, previews for the movie, you've probably got about as much frame of reference as we are going to be referencing. And I can also say, this is not going to be a review of Apocalypse. If you want that, we have covered it very briefly in video reviews a couple weeks back. And I also wrote a really long, spoiler-free, um, written advance review of it. And we'll link to both of those in the visual companion and as mentioned for this episode. So all of that said, let's talk about some movies. Okay, so there are a lot of X-Men movies. The first one debuted in 2000, and this is just titled X-Men, and it's directed by Brian Singer, as have been most of the franchise. This movie was kind of one of the first wave of modern superhero movies, which is strange for me to say because in a lot of ways it doesn't feel like a superhero movie. It's got the black leather and code names, but not a lot of traditional heroic settings and trappings of superhero aesthetics. And that kind of makes sense because at that point, the idea of doing that brightly colored spandex, you know, over-the-top plots, aliens, and explosions, 
nobody thought that could work. I mean, what superhero stuff we'd had? We'd had Blade, which, by the way, was awesome. And we'd had some unsuccessful stuff in the 70s and 80s. But, you know, I mean, I think aside well, from and the, Batman. And I think Superman was the only one that was really very superhero-y. Yeah, there was a sense, I think, that's still very much in 2000 that's been gradually worn away over the years, but is much, much less the case now that superheroes are pretty silly, that they're kid stuff, and that if you want to make them cinematically palatable, you have to make them feel more grounded in the real world. You have to desaturate them. You have to make them not necessarily grittier, but at least less idealistic in their basis. And as unfortunate as that decision may seem by today's standards, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe taking over the entire world, I'll tell you, back in 2000, the fact that my favorite comic book franchise was actually coming to the big screen, the fact that I got to see Wolverine do his thing in live action, and that like Rogue was there, and Cyclops, and Storm, huh, well, that, that one didn't turn out so well, but that was so freaking amazing. I saw that movie so many times. When we talk about the MCU as it currently exists, I think it's worth looking at it in context of the fact that it is pushing back against that trend. It's not something that arose in a vacuum. It's something that rewrote the symbolism and the tone of standard superhero stuff to roughly the same extent that X-Men and Blade did in around 2000. So X-1 was basically a status quo reinforcing movie. It wasn't an origin story, which I appreciated. It established a central team of X-Men. We had Professor X, and then on the team, Cyclops, Jean Grey, who didn't have a codename, and Storm. Wolverine would eventually become an on and off member. It also introduced a number of students, many of whom were recognizable characters, most centrally, I think, Rogue and Iceman. Yeah, especially Rogue. And established Magneto and Mystique as primary villains. It also established Toad, who I'm less likely to give much credit to in the cinematic universe just because he never gets played by the same actor twice. Uh, Sabretooth was multiple actors as well. That's true. And Shadowcat and Jubilee. Yeah, the supporting cast has been largely rotating, which I have mixed feelings about. But it established, you know, Magneto as the main antagonist and established the Professor Xavier Magneto dynamic as the core of that rivalry and antagonism. And speaking of Xavier, I mean, that casting, everybody's fantasy casting throughout the entire 80s and 90s was, okay, if there's ever an X-Men movie, it's gotta be Patrick Stewart. Right. You see Wizard Magazine do features like every two years of let's dreamcast the X-Men. And every single one of them is always different in every single one of those, except for Professor X, who is invariably Patrick Stewart. And, you know, to be fair, the dude did a perfectly solid job. Like, he was totally Professor Xavier in my eyes. In addition to giving us the early aughts modern superhero aesthetic, that movie also gave us what has become a huge sort of metacultural icon, which was the friendship between Sirs Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. So X2 X-Men United came out in 2003. And that is based very loosely on the Marvel graphic novel God Loves, Man Kills. Yeah, and you may remember from, I think, one of our winter specials, God Loves, Man Kills is actually one of our favorite X-Men stories. That's where an evangelical, fanatical minister named William Stryker tries to basically turn the entire world against mutants and kill a whole lot of them. And it's really, really good. This doesn't really feature religion, which honestly I think is probably a good move if you're doing a sort of triple-A blockbuster superhero movie. Something that we're going to see consistently with Singer's X-Men specifically is that a lot of the time they'll use a hook or a very few trappings from a specific story, but then deviate from it pretty significantly. And I think this is the first place where we see that substantially. We're going to see it again in X3 with the Phoenix Saga. We're definitely going to see it again in Days of Future Past. So in this case, we have the same basic, basic structure, but William Stryker, instead of being a reverend, is in the military. And to me, it always seemed kind of like a Homeland Security analog, as opposed to a religious fanaticism analog. And given when it came out, that kind of makes sense. And I think it holds together pretty well. They also throw in a bunch of Weapon X stuff with Wolverine's origin that Stryker is at the center of, which is strange, and the comics would later pull that in from the movies a little bit, but, you know, I thought it worked okay. The X-Men cinematic universe and the X-Men movie franchise is extremely, extremely Wolverine-centric. I would say even more than the comics to a good extent. Wolverine is ubiquitous to the comics, but he is the narrative center of the X-Men cinematic universe in ways that honestly, for me, are a huge turnoff. I think he's actually a very, very good point of view character in the first movie. And from there, his involvement feels weaker and weaker. I completely agree. Yeah, to a degree, that was the case in X-Men 2. But X-Men 3, that's where it got really, really bad. That's where a lot of things got really, really bad. I want to stay on X-Men 2 for a minute because X-Men 2 was the movie that significantly changed the status quo that X-Men 1 established. Most significantly, it killed Jean Grey. Yeah, at the very end. I mean, we see Jean Grey dying, trying to uh, save all of her teammates who are in a plane, which may sound familiar, being very similar to what happened in the comics. 
And we see just a brief flare of the Phoenix Force as she dies, as Wolverine and Scott just yell Jean a whole lot, which, you know, that's kind of what they do. That was established in the animated series. And that right there was the most exciting thing ever. Like, if X-Men 1 being on the big screen was exciting, in X-Men 2, that's what got me to just lose my shit in the theater. Like, holy crap, they're going to do Phoenix? They're going to do the greatest X-Men story of all time next time? I was so excited. I remember after that movie came out thinking, oh my god, we saw it. Was it that? Was it really that? Going back through frame by frame later on Uh uh and trying to absolutely confirm that what we'd seen was really a Phoenix flare. You know what that was right there? That was watching the trailers for The Phantom Menace. It was so much promise. It was all of our hopes and dreams being rolled up in what we were positive was going to come next. And then, oh, and then the pain. So X3, The Last Stand, was a significantly different direction for the franchise. And literally a different direction in that the franchise was handed over to director Brett Ratner, who basically uh, set the whole thing on fire. I mean, I will to an extent go to bat for parts of X3. I think it's got the best fight scenes of the original trilogy by a wide margin. I think it's got some interesting ideas that are largely undeveloped. It has a problem that is almost universally consistent to the X-Men movies which is that it's got a lot of interesting pieces that are put together extremely, extremely messily and extremely confusingly. And it does something, even though it's not a Singer movie, it does something that's one of my biggest problems with Singer's direction specifically, which is just take a lot of small pieces from the comics and throw them together almost haphazardly without enough internal movie intrinsic structure to really support them. In this case, they took Joss Whedon's gifted storyline, which is all about a, quote, cure for mutancy, and they took the Dark Phoenix Saga, the most iconic X-Men story of all time, and just sort of squished them together in a way that really doesn't work. They also managed to pull a Grant Morrison and just take Magneto's characterization and flush it down the toilet. There are so many crimes X-Men 3 does, and I think my least favorite is killing Cyclops off-camera, but my second-to-least favorite is probably the fact that Magneto turns into basically a fascist Nazi type of character. Yeah, that's a weighted decision with Magneto. As you mentioned, X-3 kills a lot of the core cast. It kills Cyclops, it kills Jean Grey again, more, harder, I guess, kills Professor X, depowers Mystique, depowers Magneto, and generally creates a plot hole from which it was generally considered impossible for X-Men to climb out. Yeah, not only did it kill all those characters, it looked very much like it basically killed the franchise while it was at it. And after watching X-Men 3, that seemed almost like a mercy killing. Like, I will like almost everything. If you've been listening to the podcast for very long, you will notice that I try to find the positive in all things, even terrible things. In X-Men 3, I was just so mad at when I left the theater. So mad. The sense that the franchise was on its way out was only reinforced by 2009's X-Men Origins Wolverine, an objectively terrible film that in pretty much every way seemed like a step down, maybe even from the last stand. So it looked for a long time like the only way out, the only way to fix X-Men was going to be a clean reboot, which appeared to be what happened in 2011. Yeah, and that was X-Men First Class, which, you know, it was a very different direction for the series. It got around the problems of X-Men 3 by taking place way before them, and it was kind of awesome. One of the things that that movie and its two follow-ups did were that they each took place in a specific decade in the past. So First Class was in the 60s, Ace of Future Past in the 70s, and also the far future, and X-Men Apocalypse in the 80s. X-Men First Class, no relation to the comic series of the same title, was directed by Matthew Vaughn, and it was basically Charles Xavier and Magneto's origin story as sexy 60s secret agents running around in matching turtlenecks and uh, recruiting the first team of X-Men pulled at apparent near random from uh, decades and decades of comics. This was the weirdest damn lineup. So you have Beast and Havoc, which, sure, that makes sense. You have Banshee and Mystique, which, okay. And then you have Darwin and Angel Salvador? I mean, huh. Although, to be fair, Darwin, before he got killed like a chump for no goddamn reason, even though his powers should specifically prevent exactly that, was pretty awesome, and I would have loved to have seen more of him. X-Men First Class got a mixed reaction. It was generally acknowledged as a really stylish movie and a fairly daring reboot, and also nearly universally criticized justly for how it handled both race and gender. And I... Like, I have such mixed feelings about First Class because it is super stylish, and what it does well, it does beautifully, and I really, really like the sentiment behind it. I am on record, and I've talked about this before, that I think adaptations that sacrifice integrity in their new medium for loyalty to the letter of the old version are failures. I want adaptations like First Class that take a concept 
and run with it in new directions that are, again, better suited to what they're being adapted into that actually use that to take risks. While still staying true to the core of what makes a franchise in this case work, in the case of First Class, that was the dynamic between Xavier and Magneto, which that movie freaking killed. Getting James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender to play those characters, showing, you know, what we only honestly saw in glimpses in the comic, like in the Israel issue, uh, for instance, like it portrayed it beautifully. Now, they would eventually go to overdo that seriously, but First Class, that was the core of the movie and that worked well. So the villains of First Class are the Hellfire Club, in this case, Sebastian Shaw, Emma Frost, Azazel, which again is a really odd choice for inclusion in the cinematic universe, and Riptide, who is just kind of there. It ends with Magneto going off to found presumably the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is just the Brotherhood in the cinematic universe, which is probably honestly a good branding decision, and Xavier paralyzed on a beach. It also includes what looks like it's going to be the first step towards the X-Men as a superhero team, which it turns out is very much not the case. Right. By the end of the movie, Xavier is founding the school. He's using a wheelchair. Magneto's off being a villain. But yeah, by the time Days of Future Past starts, everything has totally gone to hell because of Vietnam. And that's one of the things I enjoy about this trilogy is that between the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 60s in first class and between Vietnam in the 70s, like it really was bringing in historical events. And that was rad. I'll say the second trilogy does a really good job of grounding X-Men in their specific eras. That's something that I think continues very much through Apocalypse, actually. Days of Future Past came out in 2014, and it handed control of the X-Universe back to Brian Singer. Days of Future Past, as its title implies, is based loosely on the comic story of the same name, except for the part where they took a story about two teenage girls and made it about the same three white men twice. So, again, I mentioned, you know, everything is about Wolverine. I guess First Class is not about Wolverine. He has a brief cameo in it. So, Days of Future Past is basically a really complicated three-hour retcon, and I really, really love it. It's got some of the same problems as First Class in terms of how it handles especially gender and especially the character of Mystique, who has been, I think, really habitually underserved by the second trilogy and really kind of by the first one, too. Although that said, one of the things I like about Mystique in Days of Future Past is that she really does drive the action. She may in some ways just be a MacGuffin, and some of her traits may be handled in sort of stereotypically gendered ways. But the fact that it's her decision that A, saves the day at the end, and B, convinces Charles Xavier to not be such a douchebag all the time, I did like that. That is not how I interpreted the climax of that movie. And I think your read on it is much closer to how it was intended to be read. I think the actual execution fell somewhat further from that than I would have liked. That's kind of another conversation. What we're trying to do is set the stage for Apocalypse here. So Days of Future Past takes place simultaneously in two time periods. In one, it's a 10-year-later follow-up to X-Men First Class. It's the 70s. Professor Xavier has slid into alcoholism and profound pessimism. And amazing shirts. And amazing shirts. Yeah, he does rock the 70s pretty hard. He totally does. And of course, he totally would have. The school has been shut down largely as a result of Vietnam and most of the teachers being drafted. On one hand, there's that. That's the 70s. On the other hand, we've got a group of far-future X-Men in the far future who are the last surviving remnants of the team of mutants and possibly of humanity. They are fighting to hold back sentinels who have wiped out the vast majority of, I think, life on Earth at that point. And I love that team. We have Shadowcat, Iceman, and Storm from before in Colossus. We also have Bishop, Blink, Sunspot, and Warpath. And they don't get a lot to do other than have awesome, awesome fights, which, by the way, I think Days of Future Past is easily on par with The Last Stand in terms of quality of fights. One thing I think the movie does well is even though these characters aren't, you know, having conversations or playing baseball or whatever very much, it does really imply a connection and a history between all of the characters that worked super well for me. Yeah, it establishes a really odd handful of characters very quickly as a team, in terms of dynamic and in terms of story, honestly, the future sections of Days of Future Past are by far and away my favorite parts of the film. I would agree. But the way it works with, you know, Wolverine having his consciousness sent back in time to prevent this event that is going to lead to that dark future, what I really like about it is as the movie continues, you start to realize, wait a minute, Wolverine isn't just fighting for the future of Earth, he's fighting for the future of the franchise. Because if he succeeds here, maybe he's going to unfuck up the entire franchise. Maybe X-Men 3 will just go away and we'll never have to think about it again. Wolverine, save us, even though it should have been Kitty Pride saving us. But, you know, since you're the one here, Wolverine, please fix the future fix the franchise so what we get 
at the end of Days of Future Past is the closest we've ever come to a return to X1, to the original cinematic universe. We get a version that's very, very slightly different. We get one closing scene that effectively tells us that X3 is gone from continuity. The initial expectation, I think, for a lot of people was that the franchise would continue in that timeline. It did not. What it does with Apocalypse is jump to the 1980s and basically work as an origin story for the rebirth of the X-Men and for the characters who will then go on to serve as the core of that initial team. So what we basically have is six to nine movies that what they've basically accomplished is taking us back to the very beginning so it can be done right, which is a weird way to do it, but also is very X-Men. Or done some definition of right. So here's the thing to understand about the X-Men cinematic universe as it exists on the cusp of Apocalypse. There's a lot of it. It's kind of a mess. And it's very much built for the fans by the fans. One of the things that I love, I mean, a lot of the things that I love actually about the X-Men cinematic universe are things that I recognize make it kind of impenetrable. I love Days of Future Past. It might be my favorite. And the reasons that it's my favorite are very close to, you know, some of the reasons I love X-Men in general, just specifically is that it's an incredibly dexterous bit of continuity ballet. It's great sleight of hand. It's an incredibly cool trick in terms of taking a lot of complicated, disparate plot threads and redirecting them and retying them. But I also recognize objectively that that impacts its accessibility, which to me is a lot of the point of superhero movies. So you've got 50 years of X-Men comics. You've got just this huge, sprawling, confusing, self-contradictory universe. And what I really look for at this point is the kind of distillation that I think we kind of got in the first movie and maybe the second, but really haven't seen since. I would agree. Yeah, there's just so much baggage at this point. I mean, an X-Men Apocalypse has a lot of baggage from two trilogies to deal with. You know, you've got getting back to the point where we started the X-Men trilogy in the first place, and then you've got wrapping up all the stuff, the Charles and Eric Manfields trilogy, basically, which yep. the movie very much does focus on, because how could it not? You know, Xavier and Magneto so many ways. the core. So many ways. Well, regardless, it's really got a lot to accomplish, and as for whether it does, well, you should read that review. So I think that the continuity has affected the ability of, especially Days of Future Past and Apocalypse, to really be structured like normal narrative arcs. Like, they feel less like climaxes and conclusions than like watching a semi-driver try to make a really tight hairpin turn. Like, there's some tension, and it's pretty impressive, but I'm not sure it's necessarily a story in the ways that I'd like it to be. That said, I think the new trilogy especially has gotten a whole lot better as it does this feat of uh, truck-based daring do. In having more and more moments that just feel like X-Men, that feel like what you get from the comics, even if the specific plot points are at times drastically different, it's got that X feel to it. Yeah, I've talked a lot with regards to the X-Men comics about the importance of cherry picking. That when you've got that many books spanning that much time, that many creative teams, that many directions, you're not going to be able to make one consistent judgment about them. You've got to find the stories that speak to you and hone in on those. And I think that's largely true of the movies as well. I mean, we are talking about a franchise that at this point is just ridiculously sprawling. There are people who will be seeing Apocalypse in theaters who were not born when the first two movies came out. Oh, man, I feel old and that feels weird. Yeah, I mean, this is a 16 year long franchise. We were just out of high school when this started. I just realized if the franchise goes on for one more year, it'll be tied for uh, Chris Claremont's run of X-Men in terms of a big long thing. That's terrifying. That's surreal. What I try to do with the movies when I'm watching them as a fan is the same thing I do with the comics. I watch them for the things that I love, and the rest I kind of let wash over. And that's a useful skill with regards to this franchise, and it's one that I definitely recommend if you're going in and watching them to enjoy them. So that basically brings us current. I mean, there was also The Wolverine and Deadpool, but honestly, those don't really relate at all. Yeah, those are really continuity irrelevant. So I will say that, honestly... In terms of the Fox Marvel movies, I think Deadpool's the best one. I feel so weird in saying that, but I think you may be right. You know what my favorite part is? What's your favorite part? It's the part where he says he's not an X-Man. That's right. Take that. Actually, no, here's the thing. I think Deadpool does a lot of things that I wish that the X-Men cinematic franchise would do. It's a really fantastic distillation. It's very accessible without being dumbed down. It hones in beautifully on, I think, sort of a lot of the central appeal of the character, the iconic version as he exists in the comics, without staying slavishly loyal to the letter of those. And it's appealing to and has a lot of layers that are there specifically for established long-term fans, but it's also very, very accessible to newcomers. 
So there you have it, the sprawling X-Men movie franchise thus far. So Apocalypse uh, will be out really soon. So, you know, you should see it. Speaking of Apocalypse, we've given you some background on the movies that precede X-Men Apocalypse. But now we're going to take some time and do some of what we did when Days of Future Past came out and talk to you about the comics antecedents. As we mentioned, the X-Men cinematic universe is very heavily rooted in the comics, or at least in picking, choosing, and remixing details from them. So we're going to talk about the man himself, and Sabah Noor, and his comic book roots. Now, I should add really quickly, we have talked a lot about Apocalypse on the podcast before. In the, as mentioned, the visual companion to this episode, I'm going to drop a bunch of links to relatively Apocalypse-centric episodes that we've done previously. So you can go back to those. We're going to give you a rough overview of some of that history, but we're not going to go into it in a lot of depth just because there's a whole, whole whole lot of it. Right, and that's even if you're just talking about the X-Men stories he was in. But Apocalypse being like an earth-shattering, powerful villain, he's all over the Marvel Universe, so there's even more. Apocalypse made his debut in 1986 in X-Factor number 5 and or X-Factor number 6. In number 5, he's just sort of teased as a silhouette. And he looks like he's got a turtleneck, and it's really silly. He does, and he was originally supposed to be a different character. Yeah, he was originally going to be Leland Owsley, the owl. You know, that sort of minor Daredevil villain who was on the TV show as just a cranky old dude. So that could have been our big bad for all of X-Factor. I am so glad it wasn't, because Louise Simonson, who was taking over writing around that time, figured, no, 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 we need somebody big, we need like a full-on nemesis for X-Factor, and thus, Apocalypse. Apocalypse was created by Simonson, as Miles mentioned, along with Walter Simonson, who did an early sketch, and Jackson Geis, who established the character visually on the actual comics page. And Louise Simonson says that Apocalypse is her finest creation, he's what she's proudest of from her run, which is, you know, really quite lengthy on both that and the New Mutants, and I think she's totally right. Like, Apocalypse is one of the enduring X-Men characters. Bits and pieces of Apocalypse's backstory were teased over the years. He got a name for the first time, and Sabah Noor, in 1993 in Cable Number 6. And then in 1994, his background as coming from Egypt and dealing with celestial technology was revealed. Going back to the name, though, so and Sabah Noor, in the comics, they say that it basically translates to the first one. If you translate it more literally, according to the internet, it translates to the morning light, which is way cooler. Why didn't they just go for that? Like, that's like having Lucifer be the morning star. It sounds all badass and deceptively innocent. As opposed to just, like, the first dude? <laughs> that guy. That guy. Oh, that would be so great. I want to see a superhero, like a reluctant superhero, who's just that guy. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's that guy. So you know there are those web browser plugins where you can replace a certain person's name with a certain phrase? I want a comic book plugin where you can just replace N. Sabanur with that guy. Not Gambit? Oh, no, Gambit would be that guy. It's different. Anyway, so Apocalypse has reappeared over and over over the years, and every time he shows up, he gets more and more complicated. We're not going to go into everything, but we are going to touch on the stuff that's most movie-relevant and give you a rough overview, and I think the best place to begin with that might be the beginning, not chronologically in the comics, but chronologically for the character with his origin story. Yeah, so back in 1996, you'll notice the 1990 part of that date, which will tell you a lot about it. There was a series called Rise of Apocalypse. It was written by Terry Cavanaugh and James Felder and drawn by Adam Polina. Basically, what it tries to do is talk about where Apocalypse started, like from his birth to his rise to being a big fish lip jerk. So where does Apocalypse come from? Because by 1996, there had been a lot of different potential origins teased for him. So in this case, Apocalypse comes from Egypt. Where in Egypt? You know, someplace with, like, sand and Egyptians, I guess. The geography surrounding the rise of Apocalypse is somewhat dubious. I mean, he was near the Sphinx, but given that in this mythology, the Sphinx is a spaceship that tends to move around occasionally, I don't really know if that tells us much of anything. I almost actually put that in the cold open, but I couldn't figure out a way to segue smoothly to it. Well, regardless, flying Sphinxes are inherently funny, so there you go. It just hovers, too. Like, it doesn't, like, grow legs or anything. It just picks up and hovers. So it's basically like, you know, when your cat is sitting on your couch and just sort of hunkered down? It's like that, but a hovercraft. It's so good. Now I'm just imagining a hovering Sphinx just meowing annoyingly at people at like 5 30 in the morning when it really wants to be fed like i don't know a bowl full of pyramids or whatever it is that sphinxes eat i think you're giving our cats vocalizations too much credit when you call them meows they're sort of squawks okay fine a giant squawking stone statue of a cat lady eating pyramids this is continuity this is canon it's now official apocalypse <laughs> yes uh so anyway yeah this was at about 3000 bce and the deal is this nameless gray child who was in fact born gray which is a little bit different than the way it works for most mutants but you know whatever happened with nightcrawler too so there's precedent he was born into clan akaba 
who was sort of a nomadic tribe in the desert, and they left him to die because he was freaky looking. And I guess that's what you did back in the day. The name Akaba over the years will be applied to a lot of different aspects of Apocalypse's backstory. It's also the name of a city he founded and the name of the cult that followed him. And so Baby Apocalypse was found by this wandering tribe of raiders called the Sandstormers. That's a very Star Wars name. And basically what had happened with them is their leader, whose name was Bale. Okay, so one of the things I like about Apocalypse's origin is that they just pull names out of random parts of history and mythology. So like there's a dude named Ozymandias also who has nothing to do with Alexander the Great or with, you know, the poem about Ozymandias or with the Watchmen character for that matter. So yeah, the deal with the Sandstormers is that their leader Bale, after they had rescued some dude who crashed to the planet in a big spaceship, that'll be important later, He looked at some of the technology in that spaceship and found that there was this dude who had gray skin and a weird face who was going to be this incredibly important, incredibly powerful figure. So he figures, hey, if that baby is still around, I totally want to meet up with him so we can be on the same side. Dibs. Now, the random stranger who fell to Earth in a spaceship was, in fact, Rama Tut. Rama Tut is also known as Nathaniel Richards, Immortus, Kid Immortus, Iron Lad, the Scarlet Centurion, and Kang the Conqueror. Oh, motherfucker! That's right, it is the subject of one of the most impenetrable things we've ever had in the podcast from the Secret Convergence episode where uh, we talked about Kang. Where Kieran Shack talked about Kang. Neither of us is actually capable of explaining King. We've tried. It doesn't work. I was really impressed with Kieran being able to make that make any sort of sense. That was kind of amazing. Yeah. uh, Brief plug for Journey into Misery. Kieran and Helena are amazing. So basically, Ramatut started a war with the Sandstormers. They eventually ended up killing most of the Sandstormers and uh, trapping Bale and his adoptive son, Ensaban Nur, underground where Bale managed to die because the only the strong survive philosophy that the Sandstormers subscribe to. You remember that one? phrase yeah that's where that comes from didn't he feed apocalypse bug blood first he did yeah they were both about to expire even though apocalypse seemingly couldn't die and bale just sort of found a random scarab in the caves they were trapped in and squeezed its blood into apocalypse's mouth into ensabonner's mouth so that he could survive that was incredibly potent scarab blood so pro tip if you're ever trapped underground for days because a time-traveling pharaoh blew up your village, which is to say your tribe that didn't have a village, then just eat a bug and you'll be totally fine and end up the most powerful being in the Marvel Universe. Should we tell this to my mother next time she bugs us about making an earthquake kit? I think we totally should. It's cool, Robin. We'll just find a scarab. Just one scarab. Well, we'll tell her we're busy preparing for the more common disasters, more likely ones. Exactly. With this frame of reference. Are you prepared? So anyway, Apocalypse ends up meeting up with this dude named Logos, who is sort of the scribe of Ramatut slash Kang who realizes what the prophecies are saying about this guy and keeps him safe as a slave who I guess nobody noticed could like carry Buick-sized rocks on his own so that he could get him into the right position to take down Ramatut. I want to take this and segue for a moment and talk about the issue of Apocalypse's immortality because something that is going to be a recurring theme here is that Apocalypse is inconsistent. And Apocalypse's representation and powers are really inconsistent. And one of the most inconsistent of those is his immortality. So we've got this origin story where he basically can't die. We've got other stories where he survives by transferring his consciousness from body to body. We've got still different ones where he clones himself or gets cloned or relies on his followers to clone him. He hibernates. This dude's got a lot going on. His survival tactics are even less consistent than Mr. Sinister's, which is saying something. And in the case of this story, it just seems to be that he's either very hard to kill or the technology he finds toward the end of the story, which is celestial tech, he'll find more of that later, may contribute to that as well. But yeah, he becomes immensely powerful. Bale is killed, Logos is killed, and he fights Ramatut and Ramatut's general Ozymandias. Now, he's also aided by the Fantastic Four because Rise of Apocalypse in 1996 is also sort of a crossover with Fantastic Four number 19 from 1963. That was when the Fantastic Four go back in time to fight the time-traveling Pharaoh. Which is also Doctor Strange number 53 from 1982. I really love that issue because it's got the exact same cover as Fantastic Four number 19, but with like Astral Stephen Strange floating over it. It's probably about due for another revisit. Yeah, yeah, someone should go back there. Maybe, I don't know, Squirrel Girl. Let's say that. Well, oh god, actually... Is that what's going on in Apocalypse Wars right now? Because they're very close to that if they're not actually there. You know, that's a good point in all new X-Men. But anyway, the story ends with uh, Ensabanur having lost everyone he loved, Ramatut having fled, having been defeated by Ensabanur and the Fantastic Four, and basically the birth of the character Apocalypse. He's now a demigod after exposure to all the technology around him. Most of the people who opposed him are gone, and so this is what's going to lead him to the big blue robot sweater-wearing guy we came to know and love in X-Factor number 5. He makes Ozymandias into his scribe. He basically enslaves him, and Ozymandias, like many of Apocalypse's lieutenants, is basically his 
somewhat reluctant servant and vizier for the next several millennia. Now, do we want to bother with the Celestials right now? I feel like they're complicated, they're worth explaining at some point, but their actual nature doesn't really matter to Apocalypse. All you really need to know is that they come from space and they have a really advanced technology. Exactly. They're big robot space gods, kind of. Apocalypse uses their stuff, and occasionally that bites him in his robot ass. Actually, Miles, whether his ass is robotic varies wildly from story to story. There are ones in which it's organic. Oh, that's true. Sometimes he's just got a normal ass in a robot suit ass. Sometimes it's a techno-organic ass, etc., and so forth. Again, Apocalypse wildly inconsistent. Have you heard my new band, Techno-Organic Ass? Our shows are totally 21+. plus. Techno-organic ass aside, actually, no, not techno-organic ass aside, continuing with the theme of techno-organic asses, Apocalypse has certain motifs that recur around him, and the most common of those are his horsemen. Yeah, so the four horsemen of the apocalypse, one of the things we learn in the comic that's also referenced in one of the trailers to X-Men Apocalypse is that a lot of these sort of divine mythological commonalities are based on this dude. Now, that doesn't explain why some random guy in Egypt would choose four horsemen based on these concepts of evil, but, you know, let's not think too hard about that because, more often than not, it's kind of awesome. So, officially, Apocalypse's horsemen are usually the standard four. You've got war, famine, pestilence, and death. Who gets which of those designations varies, and the extent to which the designation and the respective horsemen's powers line up varies significantly. In the comics, they tend to correlate more closely. Yeah, now, especially the first time the Four Horsemen appeared around Fall of the Mutants a little bit before, the war, famine, and pestilence we had then, their powers made sense. Where the characters were pulled from made sense. They were people who had disabilities or problems or traumas sort of related to those powers. Or superpowers related specifically to those themes, in the case of um, pestilence, for instance. And we also had, as Horseman number 4, as death, we had Warren Worthington. We had Angel, who was presumed dead. Apocalypse sort of brought him back from the brink, gave him big evil metal wings, gave him a sweet Walter Simonson-designed costume, and those were our original Horsemen. Since then... Becoming a horseman is practically an X-Men rite of passage. Who of the main folks or named superheroes have been horsemen? I've got a list on hand, and this is just a partial list, too. This is specifically just Earth-616, because if you do alternate realities and alternate timelines, we'd be going all day. Caliban, Hulk, Ahab, Deathbird, Wolverine, Sunfire, Polaris, Gambit, Gazer, or Stargazer, Psylocke, Banshee, Dokken, Grim Reaper, Sentry, Colossus, Venom, Deadpool, Moon Knight. We mentioned Angel already. And yeah, that's sort of the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot of them, and he kind of switches them out as necessary. And it's actually a really cool narrative trick, because the idea of seeing a hero as a villain is interesting, it's appealing, and this is a nice, easy justification for doing that, and also for doing it temporarily. Archangel was the first person to really break free of Apocalypse's control, and since then, almost all those heroes who have been horsemen have been able to do the same. So there are a few arcs that are largely and most closely associated with Apocalypse. There's his initial rise in X-Factor, which I think is in a lot of ways the best introduction to the character and his motifs. Well, maybe not the very beginning where he's leading the Alliance of Evil, because that was just silly. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I would say Circa Fall of the Mutants where he's got the horseman and where he faces off against X-Factor and his rise, because you really sort of get to see him take shape and take the form that you're ultimately going to see him. And you see the seeds of a lot of these future stories, but not the apocalypse seed, which is another thing that we're probably not going to go into in detail today. There's a lot. The ones that I think are probably best known, the ones that I'd refer people back to, obviously there's Age of Apocalypse. Age of Apocalypse is less a story than an entire alternate timeline. This is triggered by legions attempt to assassinate Magneto back in time in Israel when Magneto and Professor X were first becoming friends. Because Magneto was not yet a villain, Professor X stepped in front of him, took the bullet for him, never founded the X-Men, which meant there was no one to stop Apocalypse's rise, and Apocalypse took over the world. Age of Apocalypse is the timeline that formed in the aftermath of that. Yeah, and it was actually kind of unprecedented what Marvel did at this point, because for four months, they restarted all of the X-Books. You know, the Age of Apocalypse was the new reality because history had been rewritten. And me, as a very small Miles, and, you know, there wasn't really much of an internet at this point, I had no idea that it was temporary. I thought that reality had literally been rewritten permanently. Like, I was actually super angry before I started reading it and ended up loving it. The next big apocalypse story... The one that we keep on coming back to, and the one that's seeded over and over and again inconsistently from way, way back is a story called The Twelve that was published at the turn of the century. So from way early on, there had been teases of something called The Twelve that had a lot to do with Apocalypse. Some of this was built up across different appearances. A lot of the Apocalypse mythos was built up in Cable because Cable was raised in a future where Apocalypse had power. And The Twelve 
sort of nominally made an attempt to bring together all of those disparate threads and what turned out to be kind of nonsense. Okay, so the 12, the 12 is not a very good story, but the 12 is a great apocalypse story in a lot of ways. Because what it is, is Ensabanur having plotted for hundreds, if not thousands of years to make this one thing happen that he could have done so much more simply. Basically, he wanted to get these 12 really powerful mutants who had specific types of powers so he could create this kind of machine made of mutants to be reborn into a more powerful body. And like, I'm pretty sure he could have just said like, hey, Dark Riders, can you go fetch these X-Men, please? Or, hey, X-Men, I captured this person you love. You have to come here. But instead, it's all about like prophecies and ancient writings and time travel. Wait, wait, Dark Riders or Horsemen? Because those are different groups. Uh, They are. I guess it would have been the Horsemen. Sometimes they overlap. Regardless. I mean, it's just, it ends up being this big climactic thing that was essentially Apocalypse just making stuff up to trick the X-Men into getting trapped in green bubbles and having a bunch of explosions happen. It's got a few really good moments toward the end. If you are a fan of Summer's family drama, there is some really solid stuff. But as a story as a whole, it's a sprawling mess. Again, it, it it's may quite be, a thing. It may be at the turn of the century, but it's still got that 90s feel to it. It's very inconsistent. Also, it's got X-Man, and that was not a very good comic a lot of the time. Yeah, you try, Nate Gray. You try. Since then, God, the big apocalypse plots that I keep on going back to are ones from X-Force, and are specifically ones from X-Force in the last six or seven years from Remender's run, focusing on Dark Angel for the most part. And that's interesting you mentioned that because the Apocalypse Solution and the Dark Angel saga don't really have Apocalypse in them. And I remember when we were talking earlier, you were saying that while I like the big complicated plots for Apocalypse, you really enjoy the plots where Apocalypse isn't actually there. Yeah, I'm going to go back to this in Q&A, but I think Apocalypse is far, far stronger as an idea than as an actual character. And I think that putting him front and center in a story often happens at the expense of the story and at the expense of a lot of his own gravitas. Right now, there is a story going on in all three of the Team X books, that being Apocalypse Wars. And that's where an Uncanny X-Men, the Apocalypse-ness within Archangel's a big deal, where an all-new X-Men, Evan Sabanur, a clone of Apocalypse, long story. Who's well, a long story covered specifically in the X-Force arc, the Apocalypse Solution. Uh, yes, is sort of dealing with the potential for him to become this evil, horrible person. And in Extraordinary X-Men, where there's some time travel to a future where Apocalypse has messed everything up. I mean, that's kind of where Apocalypse is at the moment. I don't know to what extent this backstory is going to be overwhelmingly useful for the movie. I think the stuff you talked about, his origin story really is. But again, there's so much of him and he's all over the place in so many ways that it's really hard to distill him down to continuity rather than concept. As concept, I think I can sum him up pretty concisely in that he's the first mutant or a first prototypical mutant who's thousands of years old, who's been able to survive for that long and achieve considerable power through a combination of his own mutation, pilfered celestial technology, and other avenues he's explored independently, as well as the help of a number of varyingly loyal followers, who presents a significant and substantial threat to both the X-Men in particular and the world and status quo in general, because he's fundamentally a nigh-omnipotent ideologue obsessed with the idea of a warlike state in which the fittest, as defined, largely through conflict and his own sort of set of odd and artificial rubrics around mutant powers, utterly dominate, if not utterly wipe out, the rest of human life on Earth. Also, he's got those weird robot lips. I love those weird robot lips. His character design is a lot of fun, actually. I kind of want to talk about him visually, because he's such an odd character to see in live action on the big screen. Yeah, and we should also talk about his powers as we talk about him visually, because his powers are so visual and so ill-defined. Right? Okay, so Apocalypse was designed based on a sketch by Walt Simons, and he was drawn first on the page by Jackson Geis. But he is a very, very Jack Kirby-looking character. Yeah, no question. I mean, the type of technology that Walter Simonson draws, it feels all kinds of fourth world, all kinds of Jack Kirby. Well, and that's something we see consistently in Simonson's work. He's hugely influenced by Kirby, among many others. But Apocalypse, I think, is a particularly strong callback to Kirby's authorial voice. Now, the way we see his powers, I mean, from the start. So Apocalypse's main mutant power is that he has complete control over his molecules, which essentially means whatever you want it to mean. I mean, it essentially, in practical terms, means Mr. Fantastic. Yeah, he can stretch around, and that's what he does when he first appears. Like, he'll turn his hands into hammers and bounce around on giant legs hammering people. 
And that's really not what you think of when you think of nigh-omnipotent, like, horrifying death god, but that's what makes it great. A lot of Apocalypse's powers are derived from celestial technology. A lot of them are basically super science that's so super it might as well be magic. From what we've seen of the movie and the trailers, like, you don't really get as much of that. There is some pretty cool tech-looking stuff in some of those trailers. But but that's more flavor than substance. Yeah, like, you know, I I was kind of hoping for a giant sentient spaceship with all sorts of weird machinery in it that would, you know, unlock and mutate and transform in random ways over the course of fights. And, you know, I mean, we'll always have the comics for that. I think significant simplification of Apocalypse was an absolute, not only inevitable, but absolutely necessary in a movie. The stuff we've talked about barely scratches the surface of the sprawling, complex, and largely self-contradictory Apocalypse canon that exists in the comics. And to use him in something that's under 10 hours long and isn't just basically a documentary falling further and further into confusion and despair. I mean, I would watch that. I'm not going to lie. Oh, God, me too, in a minute. But (laughs) Well, in 10 hours. Well, but it's not exactly feature film material. And simplifying him down was, I think, necessary. I wish they'd kept more of the tech trappings because I really like those. But I get why they did what they did. So there you have it. That is the X-Men Cinematic Universe. That is Apocalypse. Hopefully you are feeling more prepared to go see the movie if you're going to go see the movie, or hopefully we've at least made a couple of dumb jokes that will make you giggle very slightly. We'll take it for that too. But for now, let's do some questions. Fruitso asks on Tumblr, what are your thoughts on the cinematic X-Men uniforms? Okay, so I have mixed feelings because the look of the characters has changed a great deal over the series, and for the most part, I think it kind of works. I mean, specifically, each set of costumes kind of fits the era it came out in. That unnecessarily badass, let's try to keep things grounded first handful of movies, you know, the black leather costumes sort of work for that. In first class, the more brightly colored but still based in reality flight suits, I'll buy that too. And in the future of Days of Future Past, them being, you know, colorful but ultra badass, dark and grittily dressed, okay, it's a dark future, that's what you wear in the dark future, you know. Of the ones we've seen on screen in an X-Men movie so far, the first class flight suits are my favorite because what they look like, and they never actually get to be this, which bugs me so bad, but what they look like is like they're going to be the stylistic antecedent to the traditional X-Men yellow and black, or the New Mutants one more. And that actually leads me to my favorite depiction of an X-Men costume on screen, which was in Deadpool, because Negasonic Teenage Warhead was basically wearing exactly that, and it looked super awesome, and I would totally have that be, for instance, the uniform in the upcoming New Mutants movie. I have some very slight Joan Riversy nitpicks about some of the lines of that costume, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because it's bright, it's iconic, it looks superhero-y, it looks X-Men-ish. But it doesn't look implausible and it doesn't look garish. And I think if we get more X-Men movies, that's kind of where we need to go from here. Let's not be afraid to be colorful and a little silly. Let's not be afraid to have each of the characters have their own unique costume. Like, that's fine. Marvel does it all the time and it totally works. And I think it would in X-Men too. I am very, very curious as to how this is going to be handled going forward in X-Men versus New Mutants. That's less an opinion than just sort of that I'm curious to see what they do. But yeah, there's nothing I've been quite satisfied with yet. First class came closest... I'd like to see X-Men uniforms, ideally, that evolve out of that. Totally. Okay, Queer Space Rock asks on Tumblr, what would be Jane Miles' ideal versions of an X-Men film or cinematic universe? My answer to this is less about detail or shape and more about tone. I want adaptations and spinoffs that convey the core of what works in the comics without becoming overly mired in their continuity, and which provide both a good point of entry for newcomers and appeal to people looking for reflections of work they already love. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, I think Deadpool is a pretty good example of that done right. Um, It's the right balance of familiar and accessible and really, really good distillation of what makes the comic at its best tick. What that's going to mean structurally, what it's going to mean aesthetically, is going to vary a lot from era to era, from title to title, and from medium to medium. I think I'm pretty on record about the idea that form should always follow function in adaptations, and I'm just going to stand by that for now. I think for me, the best idea I've seen for X-Men movies is actually what Elle Collins is currently writing in her cast party series on Comics Alliance, like a sort of four-movie series, each following a different era from the comics, like the first one is Silver Age, the second is Dark Phoenix Saga, and all-new team and stuff like that. That would be amazing. Oh, I've mentioned that I want to see the Wachowski Sisters Brood Saga, so there's that. But I, 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 yeah, you know, I'm saying this while literally wearing an L Was Right (laughs) t-shirt. So you are. I am. Um, I'll link to that in the As Mentioned, too. They're great. But I would definitely recommend reading Elle's cast party articles, because in addition to fan casting the X-Men, she does a really good job of breaking down ways to make them accessible and appealing and, and ways to, you know, structure them as a cinematic franchise 
that don't really reflect what's going on and I think are really, really good. So I want to take this actually one further, and I say if we're going to do new X-Men movies, let's do like Marvel and have some TV series spinoffs. So specifically, I would love to see an ongoing show for X-Factor Investigations. You know what I actually want for X-Factor Investigations? I want a series of like YouTube shorts, like 10 minutes or under. That would be awesome too, but man, I just keep seeing Angel done all over again except with mutants. I think it would be perfect. And I also want to see Fallen Angels as like an event miniseries because it would just be so weird and so awesome, but nothing with Wolverine. I am so sick of that guy. Jack Arandos asks, who is your favorite apocalypse successor or potential successor? For example, Archangel, the twins, Evan, etc. I actually really like the apocalypse twins from Uncanny Avengers. I mean, that's not my favorite series in the world, but I thought they were a cool concept. They managed to be sort of a believable response to Apocalypse's MO, like a partial reversal of his philosophy, but with the same kind of magnitude and intensity of methods. I actually, that is my answer as well. I think they do a good job of bridging a lot of the weirder aspects of Apocalypse's history, reflecting his philosophy, and taking it in a genuinely new and unprecedented direction. Right, so like they were connected with Kang and their history as well, and they had some of the same trappings in the Horsemen, but for instance, they had Four Horsemen of Death instead of the standard Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. I love Evan. I don't love him as a successor to Apocalypse, but I do love him as a narrative follow-up to Apocalypse. Agreed. REVZJ asks on Tumblr, Apocalypse seems almost cemented in the public mind by an alternate reality story. I've even heard people assume that the movie was about Age of Apocalypse because Ensabanor was in it. Why has that become the touchstone for the character? Okay, there are a few reasons, some of them we covered in the episode, but I'm going to go over this really quickly. First of all, the Age of Apocalypse was a huge event. It massively derailed the entire X line in ways that I think nothing really had before that point. It was hugely memorable if you were reading it, and it's treated retroactively as a major iconic touchstone and era in Marvel history. So it's big. Just size and scale is definitely a component of that. It's also awesome, so there's that. More specifically, as we discussed in the episode, Apocalypse is a really great villain, but kind of a habitually boring antagonist. He's by far and away at his most effective, at least narratively, when he's functioning as either a threat or the entrenched power structure. So Age of Apocalypse is the latter, and it's actually pretty light on Apocalypse himself, which probably doesn't hurt. I mentioned in the episode that I think Apocalypse works better largely off-screen. The strongest stories with Apocalypse in them are largely not stories about Apocalypse. They're ones where, like in Age of Apocalypse, he is so big and so powerful that he's the bigger specter rather than what the characters are immediately fighting. Or, you know, stories like The Search for Cyclops, which are largely about reacting to Apocalypse or trying to prevent Apocalypse from rising, but not fighting him as directly. Or the apocalypse solution, for that matter, where preventing him from coming back becomes this big ethical decision. So yeah, totally agree. I mean, as much as I like my big grand schemes, I really do like those. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. We are here thanks to the support of our Patreon subscribers, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a variety of fictional characters. I believe in this case, I am turning it over to one of very, very, very many of the characters who has served as Apocalypse's Horseman of Death, the one and only Gambit. Apocalypse think Gambit be his Horseman of Death, but Gambit know better than that. He'd been training all his life to be the Horseman of Sweet Romance. Come along, Matt Fitzgerald, mon ami. We gonna make a world where only the sexy survive. <laughs> Just like, sorry, I hadn't actually read that before you did it. <laughs> I do what I can. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, at Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. This podcast is 100% listener-supported and 100% sexy. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be heading across the Atlantic. As Captain Britain has a reunion with Arcade and Excalibur dives into Inferno. Inferno.